G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you doing today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you again. Absolutely. And I'll tell you what, Dad, I'm about as excited for today's topic as I've been for any topic that we've done on the podcast. We've called today's episode Supporting a Sense of Agency. And we're just having a bit of a chat about this off air, Dad. And goodness me, there are so many things that we could talk about with this topic today because it is just a fascinating topic. But do you want to just give us a bit of an overview? What are we going to be chatting about today? Okay, well, it follows on from the keynote address of Martin Seligman at a recent Positive Psychology World Congress. And so Martin Seligman was talking about the importance of having a sense of agency. This is such a central principle in therapy and for people's psychological functioning. And it basically goes along these lines that Martin Seligman has described in the past and the whole field of positive psychology is largely aimed at promoting happiness and well-being. But what do we mean by that? We use the acronym PERMA, P-E-R-M-A. It's about promoting positive affect, engagement in roles and tasks, relationships, promoting meaning, personal meaning and purpose, and achievement. Now, they are the ends, the goal of positive psychology and promoting well-being. Well, what are the means? And Martin Seligman emphasises the way of going about promoting PERMA, a whole lot of it comes back to developing a sense of agency, a sense of being able to impact on your circumstances, impact on the world around you, make a difference for yourself. Well, it's interesting to hear Martin Seligman approach it from, I suppose, the positive side of things in terms of looking at agency as a form of flourishing. Because as you first mentioned, this topic is something that we could potentially talk about on the podcast. What came to mind for me is potentially the sense of agency that gets lost when you're struggling with mental health difficulties in a certain way. I remember there was a time when I was really struggling, Dad, and you know, it was a time Mum had cancer and, and my friend had just recently passed and there was a lot of things objectively that I was going through at that time. But the thing that I really struggled with, being someone who was quite young and naive, was really losing that sense of control for the first time. And so I think this idea of agency is such an important one Obviously, for flourishing and getting the best out of ourselves and, and being self-determinist in, in the best way that we can, but also looking at, I think, combating mental health and particularly when things like trauma come in the way and, and people experience things like trauma. Yes, it's a lot more complicated than it might sound, isn't it? As you say, when people experience trauma, there can be this sense of the world impacting on us in such a profound way and our will counts for almost nothing, whether it be a significant car accident or being assaulted. There are different experiences that people can have that are going to induce a sense of helplessness. So that doesn't mean it's easy to counter that, but there are some principles that can make a difference. And also, well, we've talked about our experiences with depression in the past. And one of the features of depression is people feeling helpless. Not only are people feeling very bad with a very low mood and negative thoughts about the future, it's very difficult for people to get any sense of agency of being able to influence things at that time. So these things are not necessarily straightforward. But I think that as positive psychology looks at at the positive pole of well-being as well, if we cultivate that sense of agency when we're relatively well, like if that helps us flourish even further, then that actually helps our resilience and our capacity to withstand 
challenging situations. So there's that element of how we bolster our resilience when we're feeling well by promoting a sense of agency, but also there are things that we can do even if we're really struggling, and we'll talk about some of that later. And it's interesting to be talking about this stuff at the moment as well, Dad, because you know, in my lifetime anyway, we haven't experienced a period where people have, I suppose, had less agency in terms of restrictions imposed on them from the government and uh, even things like you know, masks and all this sort of stuff, which would have just seemed so foreign two years ago to be wearing this. And obviously a whole bunch of people for whatever reason, you know, maybe in America mainly, have taken issue with that. And I wonder if on some level that is to do with maybe feeling a sense of agency being taken away from them. So I think it's certainly something that's really relevant at the moment as well. It is. And actually, when we think about this, when we think about the worldwide pandemic, there's another issue comes up there, which is the notion of collective agency, not just individual agency. And I noticed early on I said about looking at ways of being able to influence things for yourself, but it's also looking at how we can influence things on the part of a whole community or as part of a whole community. And certainly Western cultures tend to be quite individualistic, whereas a number of Eastern cultures, for example, might much more readily think in terms of what people can achieve as a collective And there can be some tension between these collective goals and individual goals. And it's interesting how in the course of history, even if we look at Chinese history, for example, flourishing tends to occur more greatly when there's a balance between collective well-being and agency as well as individual agency. Well, that's fascinating. And look, I must admit, it's something that I think maybe in the last couple of weeks even as recently is the most recent lockdown in Melbourne. I think that sense of collective agency is something that I'm probably noticing for the first time, maybe in such an explicit way. But you see things on Twitter, like even just people putting up just even a statement of, of how proud they are that Victorians have been able to get through something or, or yeah, how even just happy they are to be a, a part of the community that they are a part of for everyone chipping in in their own little way and, and all these sorts of things. I think we have a tangible sense of what we can get out of that collective sense of agency from recent times too. It is a real achievement, isn't it, helping get more on top of a Delta variant, at least for a period of time. And, and it does remind me of the early stages of the pandemic, how well different governments in Australia, various state governments and the federal government really worked together to look to keep COVID at bay. And it was part of that collective effort that made a difference. And as many commentators have described there seems to have been some cost with different states getting into a little bit more, well, political one-upmanship, if you like, or competitiveness, that might seem to compromise some of the collective efforts that people are making. So it's a tricky kind of balance, isn't it? Because there is a curb with individual freedoms when we look at lockdowns. And so it's, it's not an easy balance necessarily to find. But I think that notion of looking at both our individual and our collective agency. In other words, what can we do ourselves? What can we do as a larger group pulling together to look to be effective at dealing with adversity? Looking at it from that perspective is something that's going to make a real difference to outcomes. It's a helpful lens to look at things through. And I know that sense of individual agency is something that has really been explored for thousands of years. I know it's something that we'll talk about a little bit later on, but 
you go as far back as the Iliad and the Odyssey and some of the earliest Western literature explores these themes of agency and, and how much personal agency we have. And I could honestly talk about this stuff all day, Dad. So we'll have to uh, see how we go. I might have to get into the editing a little bit afterwards if we go down too many rabbit holes. But before we get into all that sort of stuff, let's take a bit of a broad overview and look at what actually is a sense of agency because it's something that might seem a little bit simple on the surface can actually be quite complex but I know there's a bit of a model in psychology in terms of what agency is which is I think going to really help us. Well this is certainly part of Martin Seligman's genius being able to clarify certain concepts or ideas to make it more understandable and so he spelt out in this recent keynote address about there being three core elements of agency. One is efficacy or self-efficacy. That's basically the confidence that we have in being able to achieve a goal. And I'll just mention an aside about this. Sadly, in the last week, there are a number of obituaries that have come out acknowledging the passing of Albert Bandura. Albert Bandura is one of the most famous psychologists from the second half of last century, for example. He came up with the idea of modelling, how our behaviour is strongly influenced by seeing others act a certain way. So modelling was one of his great achievements in helping us understand that but another one was self-efficacy and so when you're working as a therapist you're helping people with phobias or you're helping people counter an addiction or you're helping people make any kind of behavioral change as a psychologist you always have the notion of self-efficacy in mind how might the person have a certain kind of experience that leads them to think that they can maybe achieve a goal. They're more likely to achieve a goal. The probability with which they'll achieve a goal, that's self-efficacy. But then there's another dimension of optimism. And again, this very much comes from Martin Seligman's work on learned optimism. He studied depression around the 1960s and 70s and came up with a model of learned helplessness. When animals or people are suffering from depression, part of it is likely because they've had a range of negative experiences and learnt to feel helpless, that they can't make a difference to various situations. Whereas if we can promote a sense of optimism, that helps resilience. And as Martin Seligman defined optimism, that means that if good things happen, you see it as happening because you've influenced that yourself in a way which is generalised, it's repeatable, Across situations, across time, you can keep up these persistent changes when they're good. That's optimism. Whereas optimism means that if something happens that's bad, you see it as temporary, as time-bound. It might apply to some situations rather than others, and it's kind of like not your fault that it happened. Whereas a pessimistic outlook is the opposite. If something bad happens, oh, yes, it's going to stay bad. It's not just bad in this situation, it's bad in a whole range of situations and it's bad because I've screwed up I don't have the capacity to deal with this whereas with a pessimist if something good happens they think well that was a bit of a fluke that's not like I helped that happen it was just sheer luck on that occasion and it probably won't keep on going well it'll probably all fall over soon if it worked in this situation it's not going to work so well in another situation so in other words optimism is basically looking at how we can help positive change continue in a stable way across a range of situations across time. So that relates partly to self-efficacy, but it's an outlook as well that we can have. And then the third area is imagination and creativity. So what are some of the different ways 
that we can achieve goals. So optimism is partly about the range of goals we think we might achieve and creativity is drawing on many different ways, seeing ourselves as being very resourceful. We can come up with new ways of being able to achieve problems even if they seem like very difficult or even wicked problems. Well, I think it's a fascinating idea and, you know, it's one that's so relevant at the moment, I think even before COVID, because you look at, for example, people like Gary Vaynerchuk, who's a, you know, he's a bit of a kind of marketing guru, social media sort of guy. His whole kind of thing is, you know, take life by the scruff of the neck and basically chase your dreams and follow your dreams. And his whole thing is about kind of enabling people to do that. But he's clearly picked up on a a want for agency that people have had in maybe a professional context. And so clearly his popularity has been, uh, yeah, based around that need for agency that he's been able to tap into. Yes, and so one thing that he would recognise is that when people do act with more agency, then they're going to achieve more. People are going to keep on going even if they face difficulty. They're not going to give up as much. And when people have that kind of outlook... They do have greater achievement in, say, work or other kind of tasks. Sporting teams do better. People live longer. For example, optimists are going to live about eight years longer on average than pessimists. That's quite a remarkable difference in health. And another difference is optimists are generally going to be happier whilst they're living longer. Well, one of the interesting things that I find about all this, Dad, is just how long people have been looking at ideas like this because you can basically go back as far as Homer the ancient Greek poet Homer and basically he was exploring these ideas I know he's probably not a historical person so to speak but the poems that we attribute to Homer explore these ideas and particularly with the Iliad and the Odyssey and I know in between the time when the Iliad and the Odyssey were written clearly there was a huge philosophical shift that occurred around this idea of agency And you look at the Iliad, basically the whole of the Iliad is in many ways based on the premise that humans don't have agency. In many ways, we're the playthings of the gods, we're at the whim of the gods, so to speak. And I know in the very first line of the Iliad, basically it finishes with the phrase, all in fulfilment of the will of Zeus. In terms of saying, hey, I'm about to tell you a story, but at the end of the day, the whole story is just basically, you know, one guy playing chess in many ways in terms of Zeus, in terms it was all based on his will. But then, for example, if you look at the first line of the Odyssey, tell me muse of the man of many ways who has driven far journeys after he had sacked Troy's sacred citadel. Well, clearly the whole story is about a man about a person and even just in that line a man of many ways it introduces the idea of agency with that man in terms of the intelligence that Odysseus has so it's such a profound shift that in many ways makes up some of the basis for western culture and society in many ways absolutely and one thing that's so interesting is how that philosophy was developed further for example by Aristotle about 500 years later And so Aristotle talked about character or virtues. This is partly where the character strengths come from in psychology. Aristotle encouraged people to use reason, but also to act with their character strengths or virtues, if you like. Now, the thing that we know now from research, hard-nosed research in the biomedical field, is if people face some kind of adversity, for example, it could be trauma or it could be prolonged illness, 
or it could be challenges such as being a long-term carer for someone else. Usually that leads to an increased inflammation response. That means it really affects someone's health and well-being. Now, the thing is, if people act in accordance with eudaimonic well-being that Aristotle talked about. So eudaimonic well-being is doing things for the benefit of other people, using your strengths and virtues for the benefit of other people, it counters the inflammation response. So if people are finding challenges from COVID, if people are finding challenges from trauma, if people are finding challenges from other kind of loss or adversity, if people are actively continuing to do things, drawing on the best in themselves to be of benefit to other people around them or the community, actually their immune systems work better. Now, what an amazing kind of thing. This is Aristotle around about, what, 500 BC or something along those lines, talking about these things, certainly several hundred years BC, and yet this wisdom now shows up in this kind of research. So it does have an effect on our body, on our mind, dare I say body, mind and soul, at a spiritual level. This can impact on us. But also, I think as Seligman described, which is fascinating, if we look at different religions through different eras, it's those religions that support a sense of agency, as many modern religions do, that encourage the greatest health and well-being. Whereas if you get religions that say that your fortunes just depend on the grace of God, then actually cultures and individuals don't flourish so much if they've got that kind of belief rather than the belief that people might be supported by their spirituality, they might be supported by their God, but people are still looking at how they can make a difference themselves, often in terms of drawing on their virtues to help other people. Well, that's really interesting to hear, especially in the context of something like, for example, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it seems that between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that was one of the things that developed in terms of, again, the Old Testament almost had similarities with the Iliad in many ways in terms of we're very much at the whim of God and you know we had to basically conform to sort of whatever God wanted us to do or we would suffer his wrath and all that sort of stuff. Whereas in the New Testament, it was very much like, well, in the face of that, actually these are all the things that you can do in order to you know, live a good life and be prosperous and be happy and have connection. So it almost seems as if it's not something that you know, either religions do have or don't have, but it's also something that they can develop along the way. Yes, and I was interested to hear from Seligman that most modern religions have gone in that more what he calls an agentic direction, so people having more sense of agency. And when you think about it, that relates to the notion of prayer, with prayer, it doesn't just mean that people have to passively wish for something to happen. It's about also following up and making a difference in some ways oneself. And another thing that really interests me about this active kind of attitude, if you like, is it has an impact at the brain functioning level. So Seligman talks about this in terms of the hope circuit, this aspect of brain functioning, where if there are conditions in which we face a lot of hardship where many people might feel helpless, actually the default position for animals as well as humans is to respond with some level of passivity or helplessness. And it activates part of the brain, if you like, the Rafe nucleus associated with this level of helplessness. However, if we come up with some kind of action or hope or activity where we have an intention of making a difference, of improving the situation, what that does is that inhibits this default 
helplessness circuit. As Seligman describes, it activates a part of the brain called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. And this part of the prefrontal cortex, then that's engaged with action or intentions or motivation, if you like, with intention, you act on that and that inhibits the default helpless response. So that means that if people are facing adversity and yet will continue to activate themselves in some ways to try something different, in a sense, not give up, keep on trying, try different kind of ways, it actually changes brain activity in a way that helps counter a helpless and depressive response. And when you think about it, that's actually what a lot of therapy is on about. Even when people are facing challenging situations, finding something, some direction that might be achievable that makes a bit of a difference and then building on that. I always find it absolutely fascinating to hear, for example, the brain science and the brain chemistry explained about some of this stuff because clearly they were onto that, you know, over 2,000 years ago, over 3,000 years ago when, for example, you know, Homer, I know he wasn't a historical person or anything, but when these poems were first composed, clearly they tapped into something. They wouldn't have had any idea about the actual brain science of it, but clearly they recognised that there was something there. And the other thing that I find really interesting about all this is in recent times in particular, just how much in sport they've seemed to cotton on to some of this sort of stuff. And, you know, Ash Barty to me is just about the, I suppose, prototypical sports person in terms of her mindset and her ability to control what she can control. And I listened to a podcast recently with her mindset coach dad, uh, Ben Crow is his name. And I'll pop it up on the podcast page for today at sykespeels.com.au because it's honestly one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to because he talks about all of the things that he does with Ash Barty in order to, I suppose, keep her in the moment, keep her thinking about the things that she can control rather than being distracted by the things that she can't control. And it is so interesting to hear you talk about that because these are such profound ideas. And, you know, obviously we mentioned it's been spoken about for 3,000 years, so you'd think it would be simple in some ways. But then you hear, you know, as I say, people like, whether it be Ash Barty or, you know, the, the top NFL teams or the top AFL teams or these, you know, giant organisations in the sporting world, they're really getting around this sort of stuff. And it's only in quite recent times that it's started to become quite a big thing too. It sounds to me, I've heard you describe some of the principles also that sporting coaches use. And what strikes me is how much overlap there is with therapy principles. So look, from memory, there was something you said about intention and attention. Now, you know the person that's associated with, but um, yeah, if you can describe a bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So really interesting guy, Paddy Steinford is his name, and he used to play in the AFL, and I think he had a knee injury and basically had to retire early. But he was, last year, so 2020, he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated as a mental performance coach. So to me, that just suggested, you know, a huge change in sport in terms of you think of Sports Illustrated. Athletes are obviously the ones that you'd associate with being on the cover of that. So to have a mental performance coach suggested you know that this has really been adopted in sport but Paddy Steinford has these kind of four elements of mental performance of you know athletic performance but at the same time all, all sports played in between the years and so um, that's why I really enjoy this sort of stuff but he talks about the four elements of intention attention being present 
and opening up to discomfort or pain. So intention in terms of setting the intention of exactly what you want to do, whether it be Ash Barty, I want to win Wimbledon or I want to be world number one in the world. No one Ash Barty, I'm not sure that she'd be so uh, outcome driven with her goals. But at the same time, it's setting an intention of what you want to do. Then attention. So it's obviously bringing your attention to doing that. So it's putting things in place, putting your attentional focus towards achieving that goal. Then the third one being present, uh, which he calls dropping in. So basically, obviously, with an athlete, you know, look at the Olympics at the moment in terms of the, the stakes of performance are so high in one moment. You're so much of the time in sport, you don't necessarily get a second chance at something. So that whole idea of being present or dropping in is just really switching on for that moment. And then the fourth one of those is opening up to discomfort or pain. So one thing that was really interesting that Ben Crow said, Ash Barty's mindset coach, that we've spoken a little bit about on the podcast, Dad, is that idea of almost there's two types of people in the world in terms of there's people who see vulnerability as strength or vulnerability as weakness. So it's just acknowledging that there is strength in vulnerability. Everyone's going to be vulnerability at times. And if you can embrace that, well, then it enhances your sense of agency because it's not as if you, you find yourself in a position where you're out of control with feelings of vulnerability. You're allowing yourself to feel those in the moment that they come up. Wow, it's just amazing what overlap, again, there is between what you described and therapy. And one of the first things is allowing oneself to be vulnerable. Part of it is not having to be in full control. Like agency or intention, it does mean that you're expecting yourself to make things happen just 100% how you wish. It's not about that kind of mastery, if you like. It's more about the direction that you're setting your resources. It's more about the direction that you're applying yourself in a certain kind of way. And I'm struck by the elements that you mentioned because intention and attention... There's a phrase that comes up in hypnosis, which is about paying attention with intention. A whole lot of hypnosis involves influencing your mental state by focusing on things in a certain kind of way. We actually even talked about this in the dissociative episodes recently, about there being a hypnotic aspect to people having certain dissociative experiences, but also with normal hypnosis. People are directing their attention in certain ways to influence their mental state. But then you're mentioning about, say, being in the present or dropping in. Well, that's mindfulness. There's so much of an emphasis these days on mindfulness techniques. Well, that's all about being in the present. And then you're mentioning about opening yourself up to discomfort or pain. Well, that's what we call exposure. A whole lot of where people get into difficulty with mental health problems or, say, addictions, say it might be at times with anxiety and avoidance that way it could be with trauma reactions in certain ways often people getting caught up in avoidance strategies trying to over control the pain or what we talked about again in recent dissociative episodes there's that notion of people looking to avoid pain that they experience whereas the way forward is allowing yourself to experience pain from within your own skin now i'm just struck by the parallel terms that you're using with sport you can understand how an athlete is going to go through all sorts of challenge, including in, in their physical feelings while they're running a 1,500-metre race or a marathon or whatever. And so it sounds like from what you're saying, you don't just try and block all of that out or pretend it's not there. It's about a different kind of way of dealing with it, having a wherewithal for dealing with it, but not having to feel 100% in control, having ways of bearing with it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I was struck by a quote actually from Liesl Jones on the the swimmer on the Olympic commentary the other day, where she said, uh, you know, they were talking about that idea of you know, as a sports person, if you're in your head, you're dead in terms of you're almost overthinking things, and it's a lot harder to perform at your top. And she said, if you're too much in your head, get into your body. And I know that's something that Jess Fox, for example, the recent Olympic gold medalist, she spoke about that too in terms of she was sitting there right at the start line before her second gold medal run. So obviously the disappointment of two days previous would have been pretty fresh on her mind still at that stage. And, you know, the whole eyes of Australia, the expectations of the world on her that she was going to perform and win this gold medal. And she spoke about when her mind basically went to places that she didn't want it to go, she would feel her feet on the bottom of the kayak or she would feel the feeling of her hands grip the paddle or she would watch the water lap over the front of the kayak and basically she allowed herself to just be completely present in that moment. And I was struck also by what you said before about that whole thing of, you know, controlling what we can control. And Emma Murray is someone that we've spoken a little bit about, Dad, who uh, does a bit of work with Richmond Football Club here in Australia. And and she also does a fair bit of stuff with, with kind of the mindset, with athletes' mindset and that sort of thing. And I remember a story which, you know, I think about it quite a bit because it's a great story, but it still gives me a little bit of pain, Dad, because it came in in last year's grand final when Richmond beat Geelong, unfortunately, our team. And it was, I believe, at three-quarter time or half-time or might have even been half-time. And uh, Basher Hooley, one of Richmond's star players, had done his calf and he... You know, I was in the rooms and he's sort of thinking, oh gosh, it's grand final, I'm, I'm not going to be able to contribute towards the team here. And so he went up and spoke to Emma Murray and so I said, look, at, you know, Emma, I've done my calf here, I'm, I'm not going to be able to run with my man, I'm not going to be able to tackle as hard, I'm not going to be able to make as many contests. And so she said to him, well, you know what, what can you do in this situation? He said, well, you know, I could still put a little bit of pressure on, I could you know, check my man before he runs to the ball, I could provide some physical presence and he went out there and in the second half he you know he did that and he got his side over the line he was one of the people who really contributed towards their win so as I say it's fascinating to see how much this is coming into sport because to me it uh to me it coincides with a bit of a professional mindset in some ways in terms of you know this is a a new frontier in sport but at the same time it also represents in many ways the forefront of research the forefront of kind of scientific belief in terms of this is actually how to get the best out of people obviously in an athletic performance capacity but why wouldn't that apply to other elements of life in terms of well-being too yes what a profound example that one with basha Hooley. you'd think if someone could say well look i've done my calf muscle you think well you're injured you're out that's it There's nothing much you can do as opposed to asking the counterintuitive question, well, what can you do? It reminds me that's what it's like with people if they're relatively severely depressed. And what we know in that situation is people are not going to feel at all active or motivated or having any sense of agency, particularly at the time. People are likely to feel helpless, maybe even bedridden, feel there's not much that they can do at all. But when people are severely depressed, one of the things that we look at is generally the notion of, well, what can you do? And someone might think, well, I can walk 100 metres. Like an example I gave in our earlier podcast on depression, this is how a severely depressed person got himself going. He would walk 100 metres to a dam on a farm and then walk back to his house. 
And then he would say to himself, at least I did that. And when he started to get the sense of doing a little bit and acknowledging, at least I did that, that to me is almost like a quintessential way of looking to get some kind of momentum to help address even severe depression. It's looking at even something very small that you can do, acknowledge that you don't have much sense of control at all, like 1% if you're lucky, but even within that, there might be something that you can do, even get up off a bed rather than stay in it, so to speak, after a period of time, or prepare a small meal, or tidy up a corner of a bench or something like that and then think to yourself, well, at least I did that. That's actually encouraging a sense of agency from a very low base. It reminds me of that saying, Dad, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. (laughs) And I think there is a little bit in that at times. So, uh, well, I think it's interesting, Dad, talking about this in a therapy context because there is so much to therapy, which is about... I suppose, supporting, you know, we look at today's episode, supporting someone gain a sense of agency for themselves. It's not as if the therapist can give someone a sense of agency. That person really has to find that for themselves and the therapist can help them do that. So how does it come up in therapy, these ideas? Well, one of the things I'm interested in is when we look at some of our more recent topics on this podcast, they actually get very much at this issue in a general way. For example, we had that episode on the helpfulness of hopes So what we started off with is talking about the notion of hope and engendering hope. And we talked about how the first question that our psychologists ask in a first session with clients is, what do you hope to gain from seeing me? So we're looking to encourage that kind of collaborative approach where the person has a sense of being able to make a difference, partly even from forming the intention in the first place of what they want to do differently or how they want to experience things differently. And then we had the other episode on goal setting, on clarifying goals. That was the episode just before the hopes one. And I suppose another thing I'd mention is, say, looking at motivation. We had an earlier episode, our 15th podcast, I think it was, on motivational interviewing, so mobilising motivation. And there's a whole field of therapy or therapy approach which is looking to enhance our motivation. So getting that active approach going that can help support this sense of agency. And so the whole thing about motivational interviewing, for example, is asking people, well, how important is this goal for you? And how likely do you think it is that you can achieve it? That's the self-efficacy element. And if the person says, well, its importance is like a 5 out of 10, then we might ask, well, why is it a 5 out of 10 and not a 2 out of 10? And that helps the person think a bit more, well, it is somewhat important. And then we might sort of ask the person, well, what could help it be a 7 out of 10? Then the person might think, well, actually, if I noticed how it affected me in this way as well, because maybe it does affect me a little bit more in some other ways than I've thought, then you can mobilise a bit more of the motivation through the sense of importance of a goal, but even more so the self-efficacy. You ask a person how likely it is that you can have, for example, one alcohol-free day a week if they're dealing with that addiction. And at first they might say, well, look, it's only a three out of ten. We might say, well, why is it not a one? And the person might think, oh, well, say, a couple of months ago I had some alcohol-free days, and then you can draw on that. Or then you can ask the person, well, what would help it be more like a five or six out of ten? 
oh, if I had a way of dealing with my anxiety or my burnout at work, then I think I would less likely use alcohol in that situation. Or maybe I can avoid some kind of social situations where I tend to have a lapse, at least for a period of time. So it's looking at what the person can come up with themselves that makes a difference to their sense of being able to achieve a goal or how they would go about it. A whole lot of therapy, what we're looking for, is little steps that improve a situation in a certain direction. So as a therapist, you're listening out for what the person is warmed up to do in their own terms, in their own language. And often people make far more progress if you start with something small that they're already doing and looking to build on that than the therapist saying, well, look, I'm an authority on this. Here's a textbook. Here are some things that you might be interested in. Of course, the therapist doesn't say it like this, but if the therapist is introducing things in a formulaic kind of way or like a standard intervention, it's not as straightforward as it might seem unless the person's warmed up to use that approach, unless it really fits the person's perspective or what they're feeling ready for, then an intervention is not going to tend to work as well. It was really interesting hearing you talk about, for example, some of the brain chemistry before and particularly the way that serotonin stops being developed after a, a point where someone's feeling helpless. And I wonder if, from what you described there, one of the things that came to mind for me is that it seems to be discouraging this idea of a victim mentality in terms of it's, it's inherently saying to people, it's not as if you're in a situation where you can't do anything, you know, things might be really bad, but let's look at what we can do. Part of that seems to me to be discouraging people from just feeling like a victim all the time where they're powerless and, and at the whim of maybe people around them who are a little bit malevolent in certain ways. And so I wonder if you could expand on us maybe what a victim mentality is and maybe whether you've got some ideas of, of how it could develop. Okay, well, look, there are a couple of situations that come to mind there. There's trauma and then there's also compensation systems. I'll mention something about that, but let's take trauma. After like a traumatic event, it could be a very severe car accident where people lose their mobility. It could be a person being physically assaulted. It could be after sexual abuse, for example. And these are situations where it's very understandable where people would experience a very significant amount of distress. But again, there's an issue of agency that's relevant here. And in the short term, I'll mention one basic thing we look to do. Often after a trauma, what we encourage people to do is to get back to usual routines. Now, partly that's so people will have ways that help with eating or sleeping or still being able to engage with work and other kind of roles that are important in various ways in life. But part about getting back to usual routines is it can give a sense of predictability and, dare I say, agency that I can still influence the world. It's not like the world has stopped me from doing such and such. But if I can draw an example where people particularly can get stuck with trauma, I've noticed it's... Sometimes when people have a why me approach, why did this happen to me? Or it could be after loss. It could be after a separation, for example. If the person thinks, why me? Well, it's an unanswerable question. Sometimes bad luck comes into it. Sometimes there were things that you just couldn't avoid. Like why does in a fire one house get burnt down and sometimes the neighbouring house even though it's just as clear of trees or whatever, one house gets burnt down, the other doesn't. 
Or there might be circumstances where someone catches COVID and someone else doesn't and they've looked to engage in the same kind of practices. Now, if we get caught up in the why me, it pulls the rug out from under ourselves in terms of agency. It just highlights that sense of helplessness or victimhood, if you like. And that's not helpful. So some of that early on is understandable. But if people stay with that kind of reaction, then that is going to have a real impact on them. And that's maybe one of the downsides also of, say, compensation schemes. We've talked about this in the past. Many people had seen in the past, for example, through work cover or other schemes. If people have been in a position to have to show how much they've been harmed by a certain work situation or accident or something that's happened in that way, then it can be like the person's role is to show how now they're a squashed bug compared to how things were before. They can't do this, they can't do that, and highlighting the things that they can't do. Well, unfortunately, and sometimes the legal system works in a way to almost encourage this, the person having to say how damaged they've been for how many years by an accident or some other very unfortunate situation. Now, the problem is that can encourage the person to emphasise how they've suffered and what they've lost from a particular situation. I think there can be a real problem in, in a sense, discouraging that sense of agency or distracting people from their sense of agency. So I think it's really important with any kind of compensation schemes, there might be some kind of, well, it's important to have support for people in terms of a safety net because, in a sense, there but by the grace of God go I. There is luck that comes into those situations and bad luck that comes into that. We need ways of supporting people who face hardship but not to the extent that it discourages the person from seeing the maximum that they can do to recover. And sometimes compensation schemes can work against that. They'd be a couple of examples. And I wonder if with compensation schemes as well, and look, this is something that you know you probably have some ideas on this in terms of you don't want to necessarily overgeneralise with this, but I wonder if labels a little bit are something that could potentially get in the way too in terms of if you go through, for example, a compensation scheme, you've been even awarded maybe compensation based on maybe a disability or, or whatever it is, but at the same time, then you would almost tell that narrative to yourself about what happened to you and, you know, about the compensation that you receive being justified for whatever reason. Again, it doesn't seem to me that that's something that would be conducive to recovery. Yes, and that's where labels do make a big difference and that's where those of us who work in the clinical fields in mental health, it includes psychiatrists, clinical psychologists and others, we need to be a little bit aware of some of the potential impact of labels. So I think it makes sense sometimes to talk in terms of post-traumatic stress in a reaction that people might have, but it also helps to consider post-traumatic growth or to acknowledge that many people make very significant advances in their life from the ways that they adapt to challenging kind of situations. And if we go back 20 years, it's more likely that someone would be called a depressive. I can remember a couple of very accomplished sports people being referred to me and particularly in one case, someone being highlighted, oh, this person's a depressive. They had a stellar football career to that stage, all sorts of other kind of achievements, a person of immense character. And I think, well, what a negative term to use in that kind of situation. Fortunately, we don't hear that so much these days. Even something like referring to someone as a schizophrenic rather than a person with schizophrenia who has all sorts of character strengths and abilities in other ways. 
So our language is going to make a difference. And if our language highlights the kind of deficits, if you like, that someone might have or difficulties, then there's a real problem. And that's where, for example, before people might be described as being a dyslexic. I like the way these days we talk more about people having neuroatypical ways of doing things or neurotypical ways of doing things. Because if something's in our gene pool, including dyslexia or attention deficit disorder or other kind of conditions, if you like, yes, there might be a downside to many of these conditions, but there are often advantages that come with them as well. For example, many people with dyslexia can be very creative, wonderful at narratives and joining the dots and overachievers in entrepreneurial spheres, for example. So it's watching out for our language. If we just highlight the negative and it distracts us from the abilities or the positive characteristics, the attributes that people have, then we're being unduly, not just pessimistic, but there was the danger in the past of robbing people of their sense of agency by applying these labels too loosely or looking at them in too generalised a way. And to me, it really illuminates the whole thing about, for example, talking about depression as a biochemical imbalance in the brain. Because if that's the case, you know, that's something that you potentially can't get over in, you know, an afternoon or it's potentially something that you're stuck with a little bit longer than, for example, if you look at it a little bit more optimistically. But I was really struck before by what you said, Dad, about, for example, why me thinking? Because it seems to me that with agency and with maybe regaining some personal agency, a lot of the time that can even be from ourselves in terms of, you know, it can be our own inner critic that we're gaining personal agency from. And I wonder if, for example, the unhelpful thinking styles are beneficial here to talk about because it strikes me, obviously, why me? That, that whole approach is a little bit of an unhelpful thinking style. But I wonder if there's maybe some other unhelpful thinking styles which, again, like work against our sense of agency. I think very much so. One that comes to mind is with, say, uh, panic-related anxiety where people can really get caught up in a sense of helplessness at times from catastrophizing, from thinking of the worst thing that will happen. Now, if our imagination gets ahead of us in terms of thinking of some kind of threat or danger, then again, we're going to have less of a sense of agency because we're exaggerating the odds that we're up against. So that's what we call catastrophizing kind of thinking. Or another example I would use is, say, with anger. With anger, reactions are nearly always related to the word should. They shouldn't have done this or they should have done that or the world should be different from what it is or how dare they act that way towards me, they shouldn't have this. Now, sometimes anger is a healthy emotion in that it tells us that a line has been crossed. Someone might have wronged us in a certain kind of way and anger can alert us and mobilise us to look to protect our rights or defend our rights or those that we care about. So that's where there's a healthy aspect of anger. We're not going to put up with abuse, for example. However, often when we see people have problems with aggression and repeated forceful aggression, often you see this should thinking, these really harsh, unrealistic expectations of other people and even of oneself, or believing in the need for revenge, or having this win-lose attitude to conflict, things that we talked about in the anger podcast episode. But all of this kind of thinking about should, this should be different, it takes away from our sense of agency. 
well, I might not like the way that things have turned out, but rather than just, if you like, externalising blame at other people and things that happen, what can I do to improve the situation? So that would be another example. And then finally, I'd mention perfectionism as a common one that comes up. People can put such harsh expectations on themselves, these really high goals that people set themselves that might be unrealistic, well, that's going to rob us of a sense of agency. So we're going to look at what we're trying to achieve and it's, well, maybe unachievable. If we're meant to do something 100% well all the time or if we're in a very challenging situation, like people often with the pandemic, working from home, studying from home, many people have learnt over a year and a half we're not always able to do as much as we might have done in a full day in the past in the office or in certain circumstances. We might be doing pretty well. There might be some ways we're even more efficient. But there will be days or times where maybe we can't do quite as much as we otherwise would have. Now, if we're going to be really perfectionistic about it and expect 100% of ourselves all the time, that top performance, well, I just think that's going to lead people to feel that they're on a hiding to nothing. It's harder to achieve the goal, feel they're slipping up and, if you like, less sense of agency because the goal's a bit out of reach. Sometimes we need to be a little bit more flexible with our goals, and especially if people have recurrent depression, and if people recognise that part of that relates to these exacting attitudes they have with themselves, that's one of the most common attitudes that we're looking to help people challenge when they seek therapy for depression, the perfectionism, the unrelenting standards. And if you think about it, part of it is that undermines a sense of agency whilst it's under the guise of looking to motivate people to do better. It generally doesn't work like that. Well, one of the things that really interests me just about more than anything else is the degree to which we seem to possess this sense of agency. And I watched a movie recently, Dad, uh, I believe it's called Unbroken, the story of Louis Zamperini, who was a World War II veteran. And he was a guy who was in the American Air Force, crashed in the middle of the ocean, lived on a life raft for you know so over 40 days. It was a ridiculous amount of time. He was captured by the Japanese, put in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. And so this movie, I believe there's a book as well, and a whole bunch of interviews and stuff with him. I'll put some up on the podcast page for today. But you know where we seem to be drawn to these stories where people are able to exert agency in a situation where you know we think oh man, how on earth do they do that like you think of for example Viktor Frankl was the person who really came to mind when you were speaking about that there that quote really came to mind from Viktor Frankl in terms of everything could be taken from a man but one thing the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose one's own way and, you know, look, I'll be happy to put my hand up. That whole idea of choosing one's own way, maybe in the past I've gotten a little bit in my own way at times. And I reckon some of that is to do with some of the unhelpful thinking styles that you were talking about there. But I think the idea of really getting out of your own way really encourages this sense of agency. Yes, and there's an underlying archetypal theme that you bring up there too that 
runs through our podcast, really. It's that notion of the hero's journey, isn't it? And one thing about the hero's journey, you're going along, things seem fine, then suddenly something tips the balance. You're in the dark night of the soul. And often we might be in the dark night of the soul for quite a period of time, whether it be with depression. Worldwide, we're going through that with a pandemic, aren't we? It's like a worldwide dark night of the soul with just hints of coming through that in different ways and the vaccines helping. But then you get some kind of aha moment or something shifts. It won't be just vaccines. It'll be the way that people organise themselves and different behaviours and having different things like selective lockdowns or strategies. There's strategies that you develop to come to deal with it better and then gradually you get back to some kind of new normal but what strikes me is when you're in the dark night of the soul and before some kind of solutions come up we might not have much sense of agency then at all and I think that can be normal like if you think of the most challenging situations that come up we don't have to have a sense of agency or know what to do all the time we might feel somewhat lost or helpless but if we've got that in the back of our mind of recognising there are these cycles that happen, as Joseph Campbell said, a good life is a series of heroes' journeys. That means if we've got through to, well, getting through a crisis, getting to the other side and then consolidating our gains, hey, well, there might be another dark night of the soul coming up some other time in future. But if we can get a sense of there being a process that we can make a difference with, with hopes, with intentions, with setting a direction in certain ways, with having a go, in a sense, not giving up, but not expecting ourselves to be able to have all the answers at the time either, as you say, letting ourselves be vulnerable, there are certain mindsets that help us get through that better. And that's overall a winning strategy with mental health, apart from other things. At times we might be really challenged, but in the long run, that hopefulness, cultivating that sense of agency, that's a winning strategy. Well, I must admit, Dad, I think it was actually the first day in lockdown for the most recent lockdowns, and I came across this podcast with Ben Crow, Ashley Barty's Mindset Coach, and to be honest, it, I felt a lot better having heard that, and I suppose recognising that even in situations that we feel that we have absolutely no control at first, if we can almost break it down to that tiniest, smallest step that we can take and then build upon that, well... Maybe there's times where we think that we don't have as much agency as we do, that we can really almost reverse engineer it once we understand this sort of stuff to be able to build it right back up. Well, following on from that, I'd like to finish up with a quote from Albert Bandura. The content of most textbooks is perishable, but the tools of self-directedness serve one well over time. Self-directedness, I think that's a pretty good way of describing agency. Well, thanks for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. I could go on about this sort of stuff for hours in terms of, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey and, and the stories from the Odyssey which uh, maybe exemplify the change and all this sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, you know as well as anyone, when you get me going with sport, it's, uh, it's very hard to stop. But, look, uh, if there's anything that I, I will just kind of finish off on as well, is a profound quote from Albert Banjuri that you mentioned there. But, uh, look, Dad, I've been uh, junking out on the Olympics big time and... Uh, I think if there's anything that we like about the Olympics, it's, you know, it's watching people with the utmost sense of personal agency. It's people who, you know, they set a goal oftentimes as a little child and it takes maybe 20 years sometimes for them to achieve that goal. 
And you think for someone to choose such a, a goal of such lofty standards and to follow it through and you hear all the stories about all the people who've supported them along the way, yeah, to me, it, it, doing this podcast this week has even given that little bit of extra enjoyment for the Olympics, even just realising that, that it really is just a celebration of human agency in so many ways and all the stories that come with that and all the emotions that come with that. And yeah, it's, uh, it's been very enjoyable the last few days, but thank you so much for chatting with me about all this yes thanks rowan and uh, as you say it's not just the winners is it it's not just the gold medal winners who are so inspiring everybody who's got there has really applied themselves over years haven't they and um yeah there's something about that that's quite uplifting well, as always, we'll put all the resources for today's episode up on the podcast page for today, which you can access at www.sykespills.com.au. Thanks for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. I dare say it's not the last conversation we'll have about it. Thanks, Rowan. I've enjoyed it.